Take your Bible tonight and look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read the entire chapter, but focus on the last section, verses 9 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I call this message the gospel integrity of the local church. It could also be called the privilege and responsibility of church membership. Or if you're familiar with the text, then you might call it what the Bible teaches about church discipline. I prefer the title, The Gospel Integrity of the Local Church, because that is what church discipline is all about. It's preserving that gospel integrity. Listen to God's word tonight as I begin in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual, sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When I talk about gospel integrity, what I mean is that we live out what we profess to be as Christians. If you're a Christian, you should have gospel integrity. If you say that Jesus Christ is your Savior, then your life should give evidence that he is the Lord of your life, that you live out the grace of God in your life. If you have experienced saving grace, 
then you have also experienced transforming grace. It is the same grace that saves as it is that transforms your life. If you are a believer, a true believer, then God is working in you. You are growing in holiness or living under his discipline. There are no other options in our life. Gospel integrity is living out the grace of God. Titus tells us that the grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. God's grace teaches us to pursue holiness. Gospel integrity is both a personal matter it's how I live my life, but it's also a corporate matter. It's how the church of Jesus Christ stays true to the gospel. It's a corporate and personal matter. Being a church member is a privilege. As a church member, you have the privilege of gathering with others who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you have the privilege of living out the gospel with others. That's a privilege. But it's also a responsibility. We have the responsibility to maintain the purity of the church. When you join Grace Church of Philly, as you do with most churches, you make certain vows, you make a covenant. One of the vows at Grace Church of Philly is that you will pursue living out the Christian life, following Jesus Christ as Lord. That's your promise as a church member. Another vow you make is that you will submit yourself to the leadership of the church and to the discipline of the church and that you will pursue and preserve the purity of the church. That is our responsibility as church members to maintain and pursue the purity of the church. In the text we just read, there are two problems. Two problems that are overturning the gospel integrity of the church at Corinth. The first problem is the ongoing sin of a certain man. Paul says he is literally continually having his father's wife. It's not that this man committed one act of sin, it's that this man is practicing sin. He is having his father's wife. The Greek isn't clear whether it's his stepmother, whether, whether it's his real mother. The Greek isn't clear, but we know it's an illicit relationship. It's contrary to the moral standards of scripture, and that should be a problem to any church that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. But the second problem is this. Paul says to the Corinthian church, you are arrogant. You are so proud of yourselves that you have the ability to allow this to go on. Maybe this man was a man who uh, had prestige in the church. Maybe he had influence. Maybe he had money. 
But for some reason, the church was not doing anything about ongoing sin in the church. And Paul said, you are proud. And Paul doesn't hold back any words. He says, remove him. Remove that old leaven. Purge that man from your midst. Deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Paul is deeply concerned about the purity of the local church. You are actually getting the last message of a series of four messages I brought on this text at Grace Church. And in the first couple messages, I dealt with verses one through five, where Paul sort of talked about the, the enemies of gospel integrity of the church. And he talked a little bit about uh, how the church conforms to society. That's, that's one of the problems we have as a church. Everybody else is doing it. The world accepts lower moral standards than the Bible does. And the history of the church is, as culture changes, church culture also changes, it conforms. And that's what's happening in Corinth. Corinth was known for its immorality. Even at its temple worship, prostitutes were part of temple worship. It was common to be immoral. Even uh, the word Corinthian came to be synonymous at some point with to fornicate, to Corinthianize was the same as to commit immorality. And Paul is saying that you have adopted the, the standards of your culture. He also tells them that, that if you're going to fight for gospel integrity, you need to fight the pride and sin of our own hearts. One of the reasons we are reluctant to confront sin in others is because we know too clearly the sin of our own hearts that we're not dealing with, we're not confessing, we're not forsaken. Maybe it's not public like that of others, but it's real. And this often inhibits us from, from uh, preserving the gospel integrity of a church. He also tells them that they need to have the courage and the discernment to judge biblically and compassionately you know, if, if you talk to unbelievers, many of them, I've, I, I don't know how many non-believers I've talked to, when I tell them that they're a sinner, that they need to get saved, they will come back with, but the Bible says don't judge. You're judging me. And it seems like if they don't know any other verse of scripture, they know Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. Of course, they don't read the rest of Matthew 7 because Jesus really isn't saying don't judge. He is simply saying judge others by the same standards that you judge yourself. Because there are other places where Jesus says judge righteous judgment. And Paul certainly here says God judges those outside the church you, the church, judge those inside the church. You have the responsibility to judge. 
But he also reminds us that if we will preserve the gospel integrity of the church, that we must believe in the blessing and the benefit of confronting evil and disciplining evil. That it's actually for the good of this man that they put him out of the church, that they deliver him to Satan. And I understand by that that they put him outside the realm of the church where God will allow Satan to inflict physical harm on him to bring him to repentance. Because we know throughout the Bible, God allows Satan under his sovereign control to inflict physical harm on his own people sometimes for discipline, for training, even for judgment. So Paul says, deliver him to Satan. Let him suffer. And perhaps his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Perhaps he will repent and truly come to know the Lord and be saved. Verses 6 through 8 also talk about preserving the gospel integrity of the church. And they remind us of the infectious power of sin. Paul says it's like leaven, and a little leaven, a little yeast permeates the whole lump. It's infectious. It's like cancer. You cannot let it go. If you leave this man as a member of your church, if you keep inviting him to the Lord's table to fellowship with you, that will infect the entire church. Be aware of the infectious power of sin and never forget the cross, he says. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. Never forget that once for all complete sacrifice of Jesus Christ because if you are fixed on the cross, you will never practice sin. There is no way that your mind can be consumed with what God did for you in Christ on Calvary. There's no way that you can look at that emaciated, bleeding Son of God dying in your place and say, I'm going to love and pursue the very things for which he died. We must always focus on the cross. But in the text that I want to talk about tonight, verses 9 through 13, Paul reminds them that the church always needs to be aware of the distinction between the world, unbelievers, and the church, professing believers. We need to understand that, that distinction and maintain that distinction. Paul here is correcting in verses 9 through 13 a misunderstanding of what he had written in a previous letter. Let me just say a word about that previous letter. As most of you know, we have 13 letters of Paul in the New Testament. Some would say 14 if you uh, believe that he wrote the epistle to Hebrews. So we have 13 letters of Paul that have been preserved by God and given to us as the Word of God. But if you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you then realize that there were other letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. There were actually four letters altogether. 
First Corinthians 5 and verse 9 mentions that earlier letter in which he had said, talked about not associating with immoral people. We don't have that earlier letter. We, we don't have that. Somewhere between that earlier letter and 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians had written Paul a response, and in that letter, they had raised a number of questions which 1 Corinthians answers. We also have 2 Corinthians. But when you read 2 Corinthians, you realize that there was a letter between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, again, which we don't have. Some scholars simply call that the severe letter because Paul wrote to them in strong terms, such strong terms that we'll see later that they came to repentance. They repented of their pride and their boasting and they did what they should do as the church of Jesus Christ. But apparently in that letter that, was, that we don't have, Paul had told them that they should not associate with, not fellowship with, immoral people. And the Corinthians took that to mean, they misunderstood, that they should isolate themselves from unsaved people who lived sinful lifestyles. And what they were doing is actually the opposite of what Paul and Jesus would have expected them to do. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach us that we cannot associate with people who live sinful lifestyles. Paul is going to correct that and say, no, it's Christians who live sinful lifestyles. Anyone who's called a brother who lives a sinful lifestyle, you are not to associate with. But you will actually subvert gospel integrity if you don't live your life among lost people, ungodly people, people who practice uh, ungodly lifestyles. Because we know that's, that's what Jesus did and that's what Jesus taught. And Paul, in his theology, never creates new theology. He simply builds upon what Jesus Christ gave us sometimes in a seed thought, and then he develops that. And Paul understood that separating from unbelievers would be contrary to the gospel example of Jesus Christ. You know those passages. Matthew 11, verse 19. It says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yes, that was the accusation against Jesus Christ, and it was true. He owned it. And hopefully that's the accusation against you. You are a friend of sinners. We know that when Levi became a believer, the first thing Levi did was create a party, and he invited to that party all of his sinful friends, and they came and gathered with Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees came and said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus simply said, those that are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
When I first got my first Harley Davidson, I wanted to ride with others because when you ride, it's nice to have camaraderie. And so I joined a Christian motorcycle club that nationwide probably has about 80,000 members to it. And I rode with them for a while and then got to think and talk with other believers and said, you know, this is nice hanging out with other Christians, but I think I would rather ride with pagans. I would rather ride with those that don't know Jesus Christ. As good as it is to fellowship with other believers, this is an opportunity through the means of a motorcycle to be able to engage people and to live among them, to show them what a life looks like that is following Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus said those that are well, they don't need a physician, but those that are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's the example of Jesus. It's also the teaching of Jesus. You know the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17 where he tells his father that he has left his disciples in the world. He didn't take them out of the world, but he left them in the world even though they're not to be of the world. He sent them into the world. The intent of Jesus in his teaching is that his followers should not become like the world, but they should minister to the world. They should hang out with the world and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Sometimes we think that the only options for us as believers is to isolate ourselves from sinners or to fully immerse ourselves with sinners, to step away from them or to jump in with them. Whereas Paul would argue, no, there's a third way, and that third way is gospel integrity. Live faithfully among the ungodly. Live faithfully among those who don't know Jesus Christ. Now that is the introduction to the message tonight. Now for the message. In this text, verses 9 through 13, there's two ways that Paul tells us that the church will uphold and maintain gospel integrity. Two simple, clear ways. First of all, he tells us that we as his church do not judge unbelievers. And then secondly, he will say, we as his church must judge believers. We don't judge unbelievers. Why not? Because Paul in so many words say, says, we expect sinners to sin. We're not surprised at it. My dad used to say this when he would have conversations with, with uh, people with foul mouths. Uh, you know, they would curse and find out that he's a Christian and become very apologetic. Oh, sorry, Mr. Davis, I didn't mean to offend you. And dad would always say, no, 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 I understand why you have a foul mouth. He says, if you take a glass of milk and you upset it, what happens? What comes out? Milk comes out. 
If you take a glass of soda and upset it, what comes out? Soda comes out. If you take a filthy heart and upset it, what comes out? Filth. You speak the way you do because there's something wrong with your heart and only Jesus Christ can change that. We're not surprised when sinners sin. We shouldn't be. We're glad that because of God's common grace that even the worst of us weren't as bad as we could have been. You know, the Second Thessalonians 2 tells us that the Spirit of God is in the world at this point restraining evil, that he is at work keeping the world from being as evil as it could be apart from the presence of God. Every believer, every unbeliever, even in their fallen state, still has what we call the, the vestige, the remnant of the image of God in them. Even though it's marred by sin, there's still this remnant of the image of God. Every unbeliever has written on their heart, according to Romans chapter 2, the law of God. There's a conscience there. And so we, we know, we know that, that, that every non-believer is not an outright flagrant rebel against God living a, a blatantly immoral life. That's why sometimes we can say of our neighbor, he's a good man. Of course, we understand what we mean by that. Good is qualified, good in comparison to other men good in comparison to God, then there are no good men. There's none that does good. But we speak that way. He's a good man, and this other neighbor, he's evil. But they're both unbelievers. And perhaps the Corinthians were saying it's these really bad unbelievers, these immoral unbelievers, these blatantly rebellious unbelievers that we will not fellowship. We, we cannot uh, have part of. And Paul is correcting them. Paul will, will essentially say that the sexually immoral of the world, the greedy of the world, the swindlers, the idolaters of the world, these are the people that Jesus left you in the world to reach. You expect them to sin. And you are to be friends of sinners who sin. You can fellowship, that is, associate with, be friends with people who live ungodly lives. But when I say that, I want to bring wisdom into that. I don't want to abuse Paul's instruction without putting it in the context of the whole scripture because the Bible does say evil company corrupts good morals. So there is a time that you shouldn't be with evil company. It would be unwise for any of us to say, my best friends, the people with whom I spend the most time are those who live in rebellion against God's moral standards. That would be unwise, that would be unbiblical. But at the same time, it would be unwise and unbiblical to say, I cannot have friends 
who flagrantly live in rebellion against God's moral standards. Christians often struggle, as I did as a young believer, with how do I relate to unbelieving friends? And as someone coming out of an evil culture, drugs and rebellion, I did what many Christians continue to do. I chose a safe place in my relationships. That is, I only had Christian friends as a very young Christian. I went to church and church and church and church. I hung out with Christians. That was a safe place for me. And probably at that point in my life, for that moment of my life, it was a good place, but it was a place which made evangelism impossible. But many Christians choose a safe place. Many of them should at some point in their life, but none of us for all of our life should choose that safe place because we need to be among believers. On the other extreme, there are those who choose a dangerous place, a place in which they have non-Christian friends who have such strong influence on them that they are drawn into that lifestyle. They are drawn into that sin. That would be a bad place for a Christian to be. If you cannot live with gospel integrity, with, with moral faithfulness, with the friends you have, then get new friends. Take the safe place if you need to. But I think God wants us to look for what I'll call the cautious place. Not the safe of isolation, not the dangerous of compromise, but the cautious place where you have friends among whom you can be an influence, that you can live faithfully, that you can demonstrate gospel integrity. And that's my prayer for me, my prayer for you, that I might have wisdom and discernment and caution, but never isolation and never compromise in my life. Sinners will sin, and we are to be friends of sinners who sin. And we need to recognize, Paul says, that God, not we, is the one who passes judgment on those outside the church. By judgment, he means God holds them accountable. God brings the consequences of their rebellion upon them. He's telling them that only God has that responsibility for those out the, outside, the, the church, outside the church. The church has no authority to hold non-believers accountable. Our responsibility is not to judge them. That's God's sovereign privilege. Our responsibility to them is gospel ministry. When Jesus said in his final words, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth, and I'm giving it to you, he didn't say go and judge. He said go and make disciples. Go and baptize. Go and teach people. Reach lost people for Christ. Don't 
judge them. Don't stand above them because you yourself are only a sinner saved by grace. We as his church do not judge non-believers. But his second point is just as true and powerful. We as his church do judge unbelievers. As I sat with one of our small groups going over this text, I asked the question, how many of you in your life in the Christian church have ever witnessed church discipline? Have you ever seen the necessity of removing somebody from church membership and, and from the Lord's table? And the majority of them said, no. And I asked myself, is that because their churches were so pure and perfect? Or is it because of the problems that Paul talked about earlier? that the church accommodates itself to the moral standards of the world, or the people of the church are not dealing with the sin in their own lives, and so they feel like hypocrites, and they would be, if they're going to judge the sin in other believers' lives. But we should judge believers, because Paul, Paul leads us to believe that the church should expect believers to pursue holiness. That what this man is doing is an anomaly. It does not fit. It does not belong to the church of Jesus Christ. Notice he makes a distinction. It's not the sexually immoral of the world because otherwise you would have to go out of the world. They're not the problem. That's your ministry. You can hang with them. You can associate with them. But it's the the ones who say, I am a brother. And they're guilty of sexual immorality, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. Now understand the way Paul uses those nouns. Sexually immoral, idolater, greedy, swindler. When Paul uses those terms, Normally, he does not mean someone who has simply committed an act of sexual immorality or an act of idolatry or an act of, of being a swindler because we all know that any of us are capable of that. Yes, you're capable of sexual immorality. And you're capable of lying and stealing and cheating and worshiping other gods. So when Paul uses that term, he's not talking about someone who has committed an act. He's talking about someone like this man in the Corinthian church who is continually having his father's wife. He's talking about someone who has that as his character. He practices sin. Again, I remind you, Christians sin. They do commit acts of immorality and greed and theft and idolatry. But if you're indwelt by the Spirit of God, if you're truly a believer, 
then you are convicted of sin. And if you are not brought to repentance of that sin, then you are disciplined by God for that sin. And if you do not respond to the discipline of God in your life, and you continue in that sin, then you are disciplined by the church and put out because you are living like a non-believer, and so you should be out of the church and away from the Lord's table just like a non-believer would be. Paul assumes that if you have experienced the saving grace of God, you have experienced the life-transforming grace of God. He assumes that if you are truly saved, there is a growth of holiness in your life. There is a change of life that takes place. Later, he will say to the Corinthians in chapter 6, he will remind them of God's transforming grace in their life. In verse 9 of chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he's certainly not saying those who commit that act will never get to heaven. He's saying those who have that character, that's what they are, they will never inherit the kingdom of God. But the good news is, Paul says, such were some of you. You had that character. You practiced sin. You lived in rebellion against God. Such were some of you. But you came to Jesus and you're washed and you're sanctified, and you're justified in the name of Jesus Christ. Your lives have been transformed by the grace of God. You've experienced not only saving grace, but transforming grace. He assumes that if you're a believer, transforming grace is at work in your life. And he makes it clear that it's with those kinds of professed believers that we fellowship. We fellowship with, with believers who are pursuing holiness in their life. You should ask yourself, what is the basis upon which I can fellowship, I can associate with other believers? And I believe the Bible would answer that in two ways that you have unity in the essentials of the gospel, not in every other doctrinal teaching, because good Christians disagree on many things when it comes to spiritual gifts and eschatology, and there's lots of things that we disagree on, but things that are essential to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that make us a Christian, that's a basis of unity. But that's not enough, Paul's saying. Paul says if you have someone who says he's a brother, that he agrees with you on the essentials of Christianity, but he lives a life that's contrary to the moral demands of Scripture, don't even eat with him, he says. 
So there's both a theological basis for our Christian fellowship and a moral basis for our Christian fellowship. That we are in pursuit of holiness. This is the unity that we share. As one person put it, in essentials, and I would say in theological essentials and in moral essentials, what is clear in scripture, we have unity. In non-essentials, theology that's not necessary to the gospel and ways of living that are not clearly defined in scripture, in non-essentials, the Bible would teach we have liberty. You want to have a glass of wine? Have a glass of wine. You don't think you, someone should have a glass of wine? Don't have a glass of wine. That's your liberty. But that's a debatable issue. But in all things, charity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. We fellowship with believers who hold to the essentials of the gospel and hold to essential biblical morality. Because Paul would say we don't expect believers to practice sin. We're not surprised when believers sin. I don't know how many times in pastoral ministry over 45 years that I have known men and women, Christian men and women, who have been unfaithful to their spouse. But one way that demonstrated that they were truly a Christian is that they did not remain in that unfaithfulness. They came under conviction. They were brought to repentance and they forsook that sin in their life. We don't expect Christians to practice sin. Whether it's the sin of a man having his father's wife, or it's the sin of the church itself, of being proud and boastful enough to overlook the evil in the church, of not removing that evil. If this is truly a Christian church, then the Corinthian church would be brought to repentance. Otherwise, it, it would become like one of the churches of Revelation, removed, its lampstand removed because it has no right to exist as a Christian church if it allows bad theology and bad living to exist. And thankfully we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that this church repented of their pride. Oh, they were wrong. Their pride was wrong. They had sinned. But after Paul sent that severe letter, they were brought to repentance. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 9. As it is, he says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. I did not have to come and discipline the entire church. He then goes on to say, for godly grief 
produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment at every point. You have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Now I've sat with professed Christians whose sin became known and confronted them with that sin and had them say, I'm sorry, I've asked God to forgive me. And I say, that's good. That means then that you are no longer doing that. Well, no, you know, God understands my weakness and, you know, I'm going to, I'm still doing it. I said, I would say then, you have not repented. You don't know true repentance. You may feel bad. You may have grief. But it's the kind of grief Paul says that's destructive. Because it's the kind of grief that still loves the sin. It's the kind of grief that still wants the sin. And that sin will destroy you. Paul said, my letter brought you to a godly grief. You were grieved into repenting. Because godly grief is more than just sorrow. It's more than just regret. It is repentance. It's turning around. Godly sorrow will deliver you, will lead to deliverance from sin. He says that godly sorrow led you to salvation, to deliverance without regret. You're not looking back and saying, man, yeah, I've asked God to forgive me, but I regret not having that sin and the joy that I had and the pleasure that I had and that person in my life, I, I regret no, if you've truly repented, you've been delivered from that sin without regret. You don't want what was destroying your life. Godly sorrow, he says, produces a sincerity, a gospel integrity. What earnestness it brought to you. A godly sorrow that leads you to want to live a, a consistent Christian life he says, you, you were brought to clear yourself. You wanted to be made right. You wanted to be able to get up and say, I was wrong. This was sin. And I've repented. And now I'm clean. It's a godly sorrow that produces a hatred for sin. What indignation. You now look at what you did as that which nailed the Lord Jesus to the cross. You now look at what you did as that which offended a holy God. You now look at what you did as that which destroyed your life and your testimony. You hate it. That's repentance. It's a godly sorrow, he says, that produces a carefulness about falling back into that sin. What fear this godly sorrow produced in your life. You're now aware of your tendencies. You're aware of your weaknesses. You're aware like 
David was that you can't go out on a uh, a balcony and watch a naked woman for so long without being drawn into that. You're aware of that. And so David says, after I've repented, I live my life with a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. I'm aware of my sin. I'm aware of my capacity for sin. And I don't want it. It's a godly sorrow, he says, that produces a zeal for what is right. What zeal that repentance brought in you. It just turns you around to someone who loves sin and now someone who loves God and loves others and loves the church. It's a godly desire, a godly sorrow that produces holy desires. What longing, he says, that repentance put in you. That longing for God, that longing for holiness, that longing for the people of God. True repentance. So Paul makes it clear then we do not fellowship with those who profess to be believers, but who practice sin. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Deliver this man to Satan. Cleanse out the old leaven. Do not associate with anyone. Don't even eat with them. Purge the evil person from among you. Now that may sound harsh. Somebody that you have served with and prayed with and sung with and fellowshiped with now finds themselves, puts themselves in a situation where they are practicing sin and will not repent. How do you treat them? Well, Jesus said when you practice church discipline, you treat your brother as a heathen. Well, how do you treat a heathen? You love heathen people. So even a disciplined brother, you love them just like you would love anyone without Jesus Christ. Because at this point, you're not even sure he has Jesus Christ. We love them. We call them to repentance. But we do not welcome them to Christian fellowship. We do not welcome them to the Lord's table, that powerful symbol and demonstration of Christian fellowship. And Paul says we do not casually associate with them apart from the purpose of ministering to them. I don't want to. You say you're a Christian, but you live a godless life. I don't want to hang out with you. But if you want to sit down and have lunch or a cup of coffee, I'll be glad to if I can talk to you about your soul. But I will not hang out with you like everything is okay if you say you're a Christian, but don't live like one. My wife has told me a couple of times through this series. She says, John, that is a very hard message to bring. And it is. It's hard and it's sad for, for a church ever to have to do that. And I agree with her. Yes, Dawn, it's hard, but it's the Bible. 
you can't just preach the nice parts of the Bible. You got to preach the whole Bible. It's hard, but it's necessary. And it's actually healthy for the church to dig out that cancer and get rid of it. And for my own soulless, my own peace, the way that I bring balance to the sadness of even having to talk about church discipline is to keep in mind the glorious holiness of God. That God is so magnificently, impeccably holy that it's necessary that the church look at sin as he looks at sin. I also bring balance to it by never forgetting the cross and why Jesus Christ died. He died for sin, not just to cleanse it, but to deliver us from all iniquity. I keep it in balance by remembering how much Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for it that he might sanctify it and cleanse it by the washing of water, by the word that he may present it to himself, a glorious church without spot, without wrinkle, that Jesus wants a church that loves purity. And I never want to forget that as hard as it is to practice church discipline, it is the best thing that could ever happen to someone who says, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to keep on sinning. Because they may, through the process of that hardship, come to realize I wasn't a Christian. Or come to realize, yes, I am a Christian, but my life is wrong and I'll repent. There's good that can come out of it. You know, most of us avoid church discipline, even though we may deserve it. Because our sin is well hidden. It's private. And it's only public sin that experiences church discipline. But yet in our own hearts, we can practice sin in the darkness of the night and in the, in the darkness of our own souls. And if that's true of you today, Jesus said one day, whatever you've done in secret is going to be shouted from the housetops. And the only way to avoid that is to have it cleansed and forgiven and removed. And if you've got that private perpetual sin in your life tonight, then I encourage you to pray this prayer of David. Take Psalm 51, learn it, read it, memorize it, think about it. But listen to David's heartfelt prayer. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I think about it all the time. It's real. 
Your spirit is convicting me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That discipline you brought into my life to break me. Now heal me and restore me. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your way. And sinners will return to you. Pray that prayer. Know what it is to be cleansed and restored. Father, none of us are before you this afternoon without need of repentance. Bring us to that godly sorrow that leads to a salvation without regret. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.